The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. This is the smell of a warm, three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm Menes. I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? Menas, I'm pretty good. It's a sad day. Australia's out of the World Cup, but life goes on. Now, I got messages from people. One um, very astute fan of the show that said the podcast that you did on Saturday night was the best podcast he's ever heard from you. And I mentioned this and said I hadn't had a chance to listen to it. It was you and Chloe, and you said don't listen to it. What's going on? Well, it wasn't actually me and Chloe. It was just me solo uh, in my car. (laughs) Menas unhinged. It was men is unhinged. I basically went on a tear for about 12 minutes. And, you know, a a lot of the passion just actually, listeners, I did tell Paul not to listen, but a lot of, um, you know, passion came out of me, you know, the frustration. And, you know, if I ever get to a point where I just shrug my shoulders about something like Australia exiting a World Cup, I mean, you can just, like, take me out into a field and shoot me because I never want to get to that place. So uh, I'm really glad a lot of people listened to it, a lot of people enjoyed it, a lot of people on board with what I said, and uh, I stand by everything. Yeah, look, I'm probably going to be closer to the be quite measured about it. And if you want to take me out and um, take me out, I've got a, I'm duty-bound to say you told me you are quite happy for – England to win against Sri Lanka because Australia didn't deserve to be in the final. Now, where are you? Um, where are you handing your passport in? I am sticking by that. I said on Saturday's show I was death riding the Australian side all Saturday night. They didn't fucking deserve to be in the semi-finals. It was shocking, and my passport is hundred percent Australian. That's what I mean. I am so passionate about the team. I want to see them performing, being organised, knowing the rules. I mean. Um, could someone explain net run rate to the batters and how it works? Because clearly they didn't know. Yeah, but look, in a lifetime of supporting a team, you're going to have moments where the team should have done really well and they didn't because of bad luck. And there'll be other times when they didn't deserve to do so well and do because of good luck. You're kind of, you were hoping for that not to be the case when England played Sri Lanka. Yes, if Australia had made it to the semis because Sri Lanka had beat England, maybe we wouldn't have deserved to be there. But that's part of the joy of being um, a sports fan and a proud patriot. I, you know, I'm, um, I'm disappointed in you, Minnes. Uh, look, I'm, I would have been happy if Australia had made it through as well, but uh, they didn't deserve to be there. Uh, and, and what was so frustrating on Saturday night, Paul, is if we'd just been a bit more intelligent with our run rate this whole tournament, we might have snuck past England. I mean, you're a stats guy. England made it really tough for themselves at the end there. And uh, just Australia just seemed to be caught short. They did they started the tournament cold. I don't think McDonald and Finch knew the rules or had thought about the rules. And, and then we were stuffed after one game. Yeah, but to be fair to them, when you get your baggy green, you also get a note saying, under no circumstances are you ever to contemplate net run rate. That is just part of being the deal as an Australian cricketer. 
Alan Border did it 30 years ago in the 1992 World Cup towards the end of it when it became apparent that Australia were going to potentially um, go very close to getting to the semis after a very bad start, but that our run rate, as it was then, was deplorable. Border even said later on in his book, I confess we'd never paid any attention to it. That is the Australian way. We, right. um, we, we reject anything intellectual from our sports people. <laughs> You're right. I was speaking to a journalist today and I was saying that <laughs> McDonald should have been telling the players against New Zealand to bat it out. And this journalist said, well, they're professional cricketers. They should know that. And I'm like, yeah, half of them probably don't know the rules. So how can you expect them to know like the vagaries of net run rate? Yeah. But if you ahead of the game that we played against Afghanistan, if you'd gone and woken up one of them in the middle of the night and said, hey, are we going to get boost our net run rate against Afghanistan? They would have gone, we are going for the two points first. They would have said that without even knowing. That's the, that's the law. And that's why that I'm not I'm gonna retract the word that I was going to use about George Bailey and I'll just say that's what George Bailey said leading into the Afghanistan is oh we've got to make sure we win first. Uh, no, George, didn't matter if you snuck over the line, you needed to smash them. And all the talk today has been what was going on with not picking Mitchell Stark. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I agree. Look, I think they should have picked him for that game. Um, I would have questioned whether I would have picked him had we made the semifinals. Um, I might not have been so keen to pick him. But I think in a match where we needed to roll Afghanistan, he is the kind, he, he was the most likely bowler to get a couple of balls to swing. And before you know it, Afghanistan could have been three for 10 if he was there. So I, I think that was, um, that was definitely uh, a strange decision. Plus, the, the notion that we, we have to worry about the win first and then once we've kind of got it secure, then we can look at that run rate. That's wrong. I mean, the, the most likely way that Australia was going to go through was to obliterate Afghanistan and put the net run rate issue beyond doubt, no matter whether, you know, and, and as it turned out, England only just got, got across the line against Sri Lanka. So to, to not go for that and to be just comfortable with a, an okay win over Afghanistan, relying on Sri Lanka to beat um, England that's not the most likely way to get through. The, the notion that, oh, if we really go hard against Afghanistan, we might get bowled out and lose the game. Yeah, that's possible, but it's far, far less possible than um, Sri Lanka, than, than England not doing us a favour. So, um, I, yeah, I, I find it perplexing, and I think that it's possible to do both. You don't have to try and hit every single ball for six, but they could have been more aggressive than they were. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Um so, so Australia bowed out on Saturday night. Uh, you were at the game, um, England v Sri Lanka. What did you think of it? <laughs> I was unlucky because I, I was, I, I had to drive, which you, and I couldn't find parking. By the time I got into the ground, five overs had gone by, and Sri Lanka had raced sort of like one for fifty. And I thought, this is a, this is going to be a cracking game. And then it was like the next thirty-five overs, both sides. Uh, you know, did they hit another? Another? Did they score another run either side? I think that's what it finished up at, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a very, very peculiar game after that. The pitch, uh, it's, it's always hard when you're there live to really get a gauge on the pitch, but clearly it wasn't conducive to um, to great scoring, which is a pity because I think that the pitches throughout the tournament have been um, really good, including the game that we saw, the first game between Australia and New Zealand um, at the SCG. I, I thought the atmosphere was really good. 24,500 fans in, the Sri Lankan fans and the England fans making a lot of noise, the neutrals all cheering on. Um, all cheering on Sri Lanka except for one, um, Mr. A. Menas, and mm. it was it was great. Uh, the the only disappointing thing, and I, we might cover this later, but I don't understand why they crowded the twenty four thousand into two thirds of the ground. Yes, to try to save costs on catering, but with, with the entire upper deck of the Bradman and the Noble stands shut, and also the upper deck of the uh, Brawongal and um, Churchill stands, or no, the um of the of the Churchill stand shut. Oh, the Churchill and Trumper stands, I think I should say, shut. It meant that we were absolutely jam-packed in and it was impossible to get a drink or to line up for food or go to the toilet in a crowd of only 24,000. That made me think, come on, you know, Melbourne does 100,000 with aplomb. Surely Sydney can do better than this with 24,000. I think it's money gouging by the ICC. To If they'd allowed the crowd to fill the whole ground, it would have been a much more pleasant atmosphere and they might have lost a little bit more in having to employ a few more um, people selling hot dogs, but so be it. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And I, I went upstairs to the top of the Bradman stand and Noble stand thinking there'd be a great atmosphere there and it was closed. So, you know... The best seats in the house behind the bowler's arm, they weren't even selling, uh, which is just ridiculous to me. Um, and just on the pitch on Saturday night, I don't think that was an accident that 
a pitch had a little bit more in it for Sri Lanka than you might have seen a few days before had Australia not needed uh, England to lose. Uh, I, I think we'll hopefully see a better batting pitch when New Zealand and Pakistan play at the SCG on Wednesday. What are you on about? That's nonsense. Oh, that is a don't... nonsensical statement, and I ask you to retract it. Oh, you don't think they were just sort of like, oh, let's make this one turn a little bit more, give Hasaranga a chance to run through England? No, of course they didn't do that. The, oh, the, for a start, I, I, I have great trust in the um, uh, honour and integrity of, of our ground staff. But secondly, it's under the control of the International Cricket Council. It's not like they could do anything. They, they would be under – it's the ICC are in charge of, of pitch preparation. There's zero chance of that happening. Well, I think everyone would be happy if the host nation makes it through to the semi-finals, including the ICC, because it's probably more money for them. Uh, I mean, not to the extent that they are then going to order a doctoring of the wicket. And if that came out, it would be, you know, you've got to expect all the, the, the chief grounds person and the others are all in on the secret. These things come out. They're not that crazy. To I, I know that I said that they're keen for money, but they're not going to, um, be so desperate for the host to qualify for the um, for the for the finals, just to um, keep the interest up at the expense of then looking like they're cheating. Plus, England are a massive draw card. Uh, in many ways, probably England being in the semi-finals is just as good for the ICC as Australia. Yeah, I'm not suggesting it was overtly saying to doctor the pitch, but it, you know, it's the way these things go, it's more a casual conversation about. Oh, maybe we should just you know take the grass off this wicket and you know, bring the spinners into the game. You know, you've got to read between the lines, Paul. If that is ever shown to have happened, I'll never watch cricket again. That didn't happen. And you're, you're, you're out on a limb suggesting that it did. I'm just speculating. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Martians came and doctored the pitch, dude. Maybe, maybe. Um, so uh, in this episode of Cricket Unfiltered, Paul and I are going to look at uh, how the, the tables finished, the two groups, uh, then we'll look at some of the – well, I've got a couple of uh, great bits of um, audio to play. Glenn Maxwell saying some concerning comments after the game on Friday. And then uh, I spoke to Shane Watson with some other journalists today at the Sydney Cricket Ground, and uh, he made some interesting comments. He certainly teed off on the Aussies. We've also got a couple of listener emails. Um, Sidant Gerda has asked us a few very good questions, and so is Michael. And uh, then at the end, we'll maybe touch on the semifinals and just look ahead to those and maybe give our predictions. Um, but before that, Paul, you and I had a magic day on Saturday. Um, so Paul and I got to commentate on New South Wales versus South Australia in the Marsh Cup, which is the 50-over domestic comp at North Sydney Oval. And I have to say, Paul, I will never forget the fact that you you and I, who've done so many podcasts together, got to call the last sort of five overs together. It was an exciting finish. And, yeah, I, I will treasure that memory forever. Oh, it was a wonderful day. Really enjoyable uh, it was 50-over cricket at its very best. The pitch was a cracker. Both teams played, you know, some some really good cricket. There's, there's so many um, points of interest throughout the day that there was young players playing well, more established players playing well. There's some really express bowling. There's some gorgeous shots. And then to top it off, as you said, went down to the last over. Um, and, uh, yeah, with you, Gav, and Michelle, it was a, a really pleasant atmosphere. And I agree with you. It was a, a day I'll, I'll cherish for a long time as well. Yeah, and I didn't get into this podcast to do commentary, so anything we do is a bonus. So just to be at a ground that I love, North Sydney Oval, to a ground I saw many domestic 50-over matches, yeah, I'll just that'll be a little mental image of you and me in the commentary box calling that final ball that I'll, you know, take to my grave or that field where I get shot for not supporting Australian cricket anymore. Um, <laughs> and uh, to be self-indulgent, and I know it's no longer the same um, competition, but it is quite a thrill knowing that I I think the game that you and I both went to, even though we hadn't met each other, I think it, we, it was 93-94 at that ground when Wayne Holdsworth um, cracked 49 off no balls and uh, off, off about 12 balls or whatever, and the War Brothers got runs. And, and you know, that was a game that was commentated by the full Richie, Benno, Tony, Greg, Bill Laurie, Ian Chappell, the full crowd on live on Channel 9. 30 years later, or thereabouts, to be doing a game live on Fox Sports. Uh, yeah, it was um, a real thrill. 
And uh, just my takeaway from the day is um, the South Australian team that has had a really tough couple of years um, are starting to peg back. And I think it's a credit to Jason Gillespie, who, who's a, a fine coach. And the South Australian team were lovely. Um, they have a great spirit about them, which, um, you know, it was a credit to Gillespie's coaching skills. And, um, you know, perhaps he'll be coaching Australia one day and I think would be in good hands. Yeah, he certainly has done well. They've, they've recruited well. Um, there's quite a lot of... Um, non-South Australian-born people in the team, but that's what you've got to do when you're one of the smaller states. And um, you're right, they're starting to look like they've assembled a pretty good side. All right. So uh, if you want to go back and look at uh, Paul and I commentating, um, there's some highlights on um, the cricket.com.au app. Now, let's look at the groups, Paul. So, you know, group one that we spoke about before, New Zealand and England qualified, Australia were third, and then Sri Lanka fourth, Ireland fifth. Afghanistan were last in the group. Um, and then in group two, that's where all the drama came on the last day. So Sunday, triple header. I think I heard Andrew McDonald on the ABC radio on Sunday morning and they they were talking like it was a, a foregone conclusion that India and South Africa were going through from group two. But we saw dramatic scenes on Sunday morning at the game started Sunday early afternoon when the Netherlands upset South Africa. It was just incredible. Yeah, and no, you can't blame them for talking that way because I, I'm someone who loves an upset, but I um, I didn't give the Netherlands any any hope at all. It just shows in sport you just never know um, what is due to happen. What a catastrophe from South Africa. And it's just this adds to the disaster upon disaster that they have had in uh, right from the start in the, the first World Cup that they were in where the, the rain rule got them down the years through the tired Edgbaston, misunderstanding Duckworth, Lewis at other times, getting blown away by Australia in that semi-final, then that heartbreaking loss to New Zealand when the whole quota issue raised um, raised its head. And then in some ways this might be the worst of them all, that to, to put out a, a really overly cautious performance and, and get hammered, well, not hammered, but beaten by the Netherlands. Um uh, and having looked so good throughout the tournament as well, they would have been a real threat in the semi-South Africa. Yeah, you're spot on. So, um, curiously, Temba Bavuma won the toss and sent the Netherlands into bat first, which did raise a few eyebrows because, you know, in a pressure cooker game, you, you'd want to bat first, set a big total, and then, you know, put the pressure on the Netherlands. But, you know, they got away. The Dutch, uh, Stephen Myberg, 37, Max O'Dowd, 29. And then Tom Cooper, um, who played a lot of cricket for South Australia and was playing at the Adelaide Oval, smashed 35 off 19, Ackerman 41 not out of 26. And that got them up to four for 158. And all of a sudden I was really thinking that the Netherlands could defend this because, um, you know, that, that was a, that's sort of a target where if you're a little bit too casual, all of a sudden the run rate um, can skyrocket. And they took early wickets, the Netherlands. De Kock was out for a runner ball 13, Bavuma out for a runner ball 20, and none of the, the star players got going. Riley Russo made 25 off 19. David Miller made 17 off 17. And uh, Van der Merwe took one of the most extraordinary catches of the World Cup. Never looked like holding onto it, running back, but somehow caught it um, in fr- sort of over his shoulder and in front of him. It was It was quite something. Yeah, and um, my my little bet that I'd had after um, after Pakistan lost to Zimbabwe, they went out to thirty six to one to win the tournament, and I had a small bet on them. And I thought, you just never know, thinking that things would results might fall their fate in their way. But I'd given up on it, so now I'm um, I'm cheering on Pakistan all the way from now on in. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to the preview, but they have a great chance. So. Um, the, the South Africans finished eight for one forty five. They crash out, and and you brought up, um, you know, the the litany of South African failures in World Cups, and I, I have to say, I take a lot of joy in watching this. Um, <laughs> I, I'm happy to dance on their grave. I have been supporting cricket for a long time, and consistently, South African fans are the worst. And I'm sure they say the same about Australians. I'm sure it's just the way we butt heads. So it's not a personal thing. But going back to the 1992 uh, World Cup, I was at the SCG when um, they were bundled out to England in that curious rain rule. And um, so, so I was there for that. I was in, ni- I was in um, England at Edgbaston in 1999 when Alan Donald forgot to run. Another highlight of my life. Up there, 
like with the best, probably the top three moments in my life. Um, so I've always enjoyed them crashing out. This is one of the best. Like you, I didn't expect it. Um, it's it's so surprising because they had looked so good. And you just I just thought their fast bowlers would run through the Dutch. Um, but as someone that lived in the Netherlands, I couldn't be happier for them. It's a great country. I saw Australia play the Dutch in Amstelveen in the 90s. Um, so it's a lovely little cricket community there, and I hope this boosts um, them. I mean, they qualify now for the next T20 World Cup automatically, which I think practically must be a big boost for them because you've got guaranteed money coming in um, now because you, once you qualify, you, you're, you know, you get a certain um, percentage of uh, the payouts. So, so all that must be so good for Dutch cricket. Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, we've seen some... Uh, good signs throughout the the tournament. Ireland, uh, Scotland ultimately were, were a little disappointing, but they um, they started well. Um, Namibia um, as well, and now the Netherlands. Um, it's still hard to know whether there's a real organic growth in those countries. There's a lot of expats who are going over there and um, filling the ranks, but um, you know it's um, it, it it's further kind of um, a tick in the box to the fact that the um at the very least in this World Cup that there's there's more than just the sort of the ten as that we saw in the 2019 um, 50 over World Cup. Yes, and you're right. I mean, the tournament started with Namibia winning on the first day against Sri Lanka and the, the last day of the group stages, we see the Dutch upset the South Africans. So I think there was five or six genuine upsets throughout the tournament, which is so great for the organisers. It keeps everyone in, interested, um, you know, brings out all these great storylines. And I heard Damien Fleming speaking to Jared Waitley on the radio today. And he made a really good point that, what T20 cricket has done is it's allowed some of these smaller nations to specialise in this short-form cricket. So, for example, Australia doesn't specialise. We play all three formats. In fact, our T20 side rarely um, is playing with its best 11, yet the smaller nations are playing their best 11 all the time, learning their roles. So when they come into a major tournament, they do have that slight advantage in that they're a, you know, a specialist T20 side almost. Yeah, and I think that this T20 World Cup, with the exception of the rain, has been um, a cracker. I think that the there's been very few dud games and very few uh, sort of one or two. I was one of the games in Hobart that I watched was a bit low and slow, but the Perth pitch and the Melbourne pitch in particular have been uh, superb. Uh, I, I've I've loved Harsha Bogle's appreciation of the large boundaries and the extra dimension it brings into the game that. You know, you, you you know, you're not getting many top edged balls that go for six and carry only fifty meters. That you've got to really earn your sixes, and the crowd at the MCG last night. I'm sure we'll get to this, but of all the crowds in the tournament, you know, I expected a massive crowd between India and Pakistan. It was fantastic, but for India and Zimbabwe to get that crowd at the MCG last night, what do they get? Eighty seven thousand, or have I made that up? I actually haven't seen the final figure, but it was over 80,000. That is just, I mean, I expected 30 or 40,000, and that would have been a phenomenal number. But congratulations to all the people who went, um, all the Indian fans, all the Zimbabwean fans, and all the neutrals, but especially to the Indians, that was next level good. That's so good. Yeah, and, and that's really jumped out to me that the passion the fans from all around the world have brought to this tournament, the Sri Lankan communities got behind their side, uh, the the, te- the supporters from Pakistan lit up the SCG. You know, it's really reinvigorated my love for the game um, in, in a sort of global sense because, you know, Australian crowds can sort of sit on their hands a bit. But, you know, when you're there and the SCG is full of uh, mad Pakistan supporters, it's just intoxicating. Yeah. I mean, Australian fans probably hasn't helped that over the years, especially at the SCG, they've kind of had to sort of rein them in and, um, you know, the whole talk about the fun police and everything else. And, there was a need for it a little bit. There was a bit of too much drunken idiocy going on, but maybe they have gone a little bit too far. But it's also, it speaks to the point of that there are still so many Australians who regard T20 cricket as just nonsense. And I understand from a franchise point of view that, yeah, if it's just these recently cobbled together franchises with people from all over the world playing, it's a little bit, too, it's hard to get overly invested in the result from a sort of an organic sense. But I think that this World Cup, in terms of, uh, nation versus nation, highly watchable cricket. I, I think it's the way forward. And I really, uh, I lo- I've always loved the 50 over World Cup. And I know I got some flack on Twitter for saying it, but I would be more than happy for them to say that maybe let's hold the next World Cup in India as planned, the 50 over World Cup. After that, 
let's have it that it's only the T20 World Cup, the 50-over Cup and the T20 World Cup history get merged into one. Because I think one of the things that has robbed this of a little bit of its um, uh, mainstream cut-through in Australia is the fact that the World Cup is preceded by the term T20 and that so many people, uh, even, even if they don't dislike T20, it's like, well, it's not the real World Cup. And I think that's a pity because I think this tournament, had the whole country been heaving and pumping behind it, it, it you know, it, it had the potential to be really special. I'm not saying it hasn't been good, but there's a level above that it could have got to. It's an interesting thought. I um, I think if, if we'd gone back maybe five years and uh, played to you the audio of you saying scrap the 50-over World Cup for a 20-over World Cup, you'd have, you'd have been aghast five years ago. Um, but but now I, I, it's such a world game, T20 cricket, and I, and I actually think the T20 World Cup has the ability to make cricket the cricket world cup maybe the sort of second biggest sporting event in the world behind the fifth, the football world cup obviously you got the olympics but I, I really think we've seen the international flavor of this tournament and i just think that could keep developing it's a really good point around what where to from here you could argue it works well because by having the early preliminary phase of the tournament you get to have more nations involved uh, but then only some of them go through to the to the Super 12s, and so you don't have too many kind of um, nominally dud games. But as you said, with this tournament having the best part of what, five upsets, is it time to say, right, maybe we go to um, start to try to get it to more of a football cup mentality? Um, like, you know, for a long time, the football cup was 24 teams in six groups of four, and then they moved to um, 32 teams of eight groups of four, we're probably not yet at that point where you could do that and you would it would result in India having fewer games and the, um, uh, the you know, the TV bill diminishing. But imagine if we could get to that point and sort of start to be a genuine World Cup in the, in the, in the traditional sense as how most fans in the world associate a World Cup to be. Yes, well, the next T20 World Cup is going to have 20 teams. It's being held in the US and they're playing in four groups of five. So that's going to be the the format for the next T20 World Cup. What do you think of that? I actually hadn't realised that they're playing in the US and the West Indies. Um, yes. But it is um, – so there's no pre, uh, sort of prelim tournament now. It's, it's all – if you're in, you're in. I think that's it. It's going to be 20 teams, four groups of five. Let's go. Well, on the face of it, I think that's a great idea. Um, uh, I hope that is the case because that, that – I'm not criticising them for the way they have had the format. I think it probably served its purpose. I think now it's big enough that it could go to that to that level, and I, I welcome that if that is how it's going to be. And also just on the general state of the tournament, I do think the fact that the bowlers have played more, role, more of a role than we saw in Dubai last year has made it more entertaining, that the fact that the toss hasn't been so decisive has added a lot. Oh, definitely. That's a real problem with uh, whenever there's due that they, they need to, they need to find a way to, to solve that. Um, it's been great this tournament that there's been genuine debate as to well should they have batted or should they have bowled first. Whereas in the UAE that didn't occur at all. And yeah, having the bowlers have a say has been superb because it then means that when the batters do hit good shots, there's not that feeling of oh well here we go there's another four. You know, there's occasions sometimes in the IPL where. A, a batter will hit a four and the commentators barely even mention it because, oh, yeah, it's another four. Here, there's, it's gone a little bit closer to the old way of um, it, it's harder to actually get the ball to the fence. And I think that's been really good. I'm sure the bowlers have enjoyed it too. Um, so, so that's the way the group stage finished. It's very entertaining. Um, congratulations to New Zealand, England, India and Pakistan who go through. And, and I think you'd say on balance they are actually the four best teams in the comp and certainly the most informed teams for, for the semifinals. You certainly couldn't argue with them being in there. Um, and I, I think that's probably true. I, I think Australia and South Africa um, wouldn't, wouldn't have been out of place, out of place either. But um, I think the measure of it is right now, if you said to me, um, who do I tip to win the world cup? I really, I, I could easily see any of the four teams in there still winning it. Like, absolutely. I mean, maybe forced, I'd maybe now go as India as my favourite, but only just. Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard to pick. Um, 
So today, um, you know, the Monday after Australia's eliminated from the World Cup, there's been a real pile in today. Um, Ian Healy's been firing up about um, Glenn Maxwell's comments um, after Australia's lost to Afghanistan. Now, I just want to uh, play what Maxie said, and I'll get your reaction, Paul. Oh, you can't dwell on it. I think you move on pretty quickly. I think we've got a one-day series against England probably 24 hours later, and then we've got the Big Bash, then we've got four-day cricket. We've got some, there's, cricket never stops, so you, you don't get time to dwell. Maybe when you retire, you think back to it, and, oh, it would have been nice to have won that, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> there's no point in dwelling about it. It's, it's like, oh, well, should wish we had a one. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> Oh, you can't dwell on it. I think you move on pretty quickly. I'll just keep playing it. What's he doing there, Paul? Does he know there's a microphone in front of him? Does he know he's representing Australia in a World Cup? I mean, what sort of insanity is that? No, I mean, I think that when I when I listen to that, I I don't quite have the same incendiary reaction as um, as others do. I, I think he's. I, I think he's highlighting a point there that that cricket does have a problem with too many meaningless games. And if you were in his position and they're sort of tr- trying to sort of get an answer out of you of like, yeah, I'm absolutely devastated that we've lost. In other sports, you'd probably be now, okay, well, um, we'll have a few weeks to, to contemplate on how badly things have gone. In this, genuinely... When when do we play England in that um, in that three match series? That's um, you know that's that's the way it is. It's just this endless merry go round of um, of matches. And whenever you see a T Twenty match that really matters or an ODI match that really matters, you realise just how good cricket can be. And yet then we're back onto all these matches that don't matter. I mean, way to ruin a rivalry. I have not looked forward to an Australia England series less than I am to these three one-dayers coming. What's the point of them? I love Australia and England playing cricket. I've spent far too many hours of my life thinking about it, watching about it, watching it, talking about it. These games coming up, I mean, uh, already in six months' time, there'll be no one in the world who will know who won them. It's just, why have them? Well, a couple of things. I'm, I'm willing to concede that players can get burnt out and there's a constant merry-go-round of cricket. But I think a home World Cup, it is your duty to be up for it, to be excited for it and to be passionate about it. And but I don't if think you they can't would. Do, but, but then he's just saying, that, oh, you know, what can you do? It doesn't mean anything. I mean, of course it means anything. Like, it means something. You, you, you had a chance to win a World Cup on home soil and the whole team underperformed. Don't just shrug your shoulders and move on. Like, show some, show some heart or at least pretend. Like, pretend that it matters to you. Pretend that it's more than just a paycheck. You know, like, that, it's just it, very, very I know, careless comments. You know, we heard Aaron Finch before the tournament saying they were tired. We've got Maxi now saying, um, you know, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, do you think Justin Langer would let, let any of this go on? I mean, it's incredibly oh, naive. Give up on Langer, mate. Um, no, look, I, I think partially as well it's the way that it happened. That, um, Look, I think there are two facts that people couldn't disagree with. Number one, when you go into a home World Cup as one of the three standout favourites to win the tournament and you don't make the semi, it's a very, very disappointing um, outcome. But number two in the same way that we had some pretty good luck in the last World Cup, getting to bowl first in the two knockout games when that was a clear advantage, probably uh, the fact that we have been kicked out of the World Cup after just losing one game is a little bit unlucky. Now, the Australia-England game, had it gone ahead and Australia had lost that, then you'd say there was nothing to, no no luck whatsoever. But, you know, as it was lucky last time, it was probably a little bit unlucky um, this time to go out of the World Cup having lost only the one game. Oh, come on. I mean... That first game against New Zealand was a shambles. I mean, we deserve to go out just for that, just for being so stupid to lose by 100 runs in the first game. I mean, you know, I let it all out on Saturday in the podcast. You know, where did Australia mess this up, Paul? Give me the Dennett take. All right. Firstly, my own pre-tournament cries were for Tim David and for Cameron Green to play and to play and get a, um, you know, get a big opportunity. I have to acknowledge that neither of them made an impact on the tournament. They didn't get much of an opportunity. Each of them, I think, only got out once. Um, David obviously got injured, and, and Cameron Green only got the 
pretty much the one game. But you'd have to say that for the two players that I thought were really going to dominate, they didn't. So people could say, okay, well, you've got to acknowledge that. But I think where they lost it, number one, and I'll, I'll say things that I said at the time. I thought it was bizarre that Australia won the toss and bowled against the, against New Zealand at the SCG. You know, first game of a big tournament, um, batting under um, daylight. Uh, it's always been harder to bat under lights the SCG than, than in the daylight time. I, I thought that was a strange thing. Secondly, having then got Finn Allen walking out, um, I, I was saying to the people I was sitting with, he's going to smash them everywhere because, you know, the quicks bowlers running in to bowl to him, they needed to bring some, some, some spin into it. I think so... That was um, uh, that was disappointing. Um, I'm not as critical of the way that they collapsed because, yes, in theory, they could have just knocked it around to protect net run rate, but I just think they had a shocker and New Zealand were all over them. I think where they also lost it was that in the game against Sri Lanka, um, I think Finch's innings was unacceptable. And people who say, oh, well, you know, maybe we would have collapsed if he hadn't got out, it's the... I think it's the lowest of anyone who faced 40 balls or more. It's the lowest strike rate in an innings in the history of the T20 World Cup. Um, you know, to, to score 37 off 42 or whatever else like that, when Marcus was going at, you know, three a ball, that was a problem. And I think it just emphasizes that it was a mistake for them to include Finch in the side um, throughout the whole tournament. The, the much vaunted, you know, his captaincy was fantastic. Well, like, we didn't see much evidence of that. And his batting just showed I don't think he's in the top um, eight Australian batters anymore. Um, I think also where we lost it was that we should have done better when we had Ireland five for 25. Um, and and we probably should have scored a few more runs against Ireland as well. Not to pick on Finch because he was man of the match, but to score 60 off 40 or whatever it was um, against Ireland, it's all right. But I, I would have liked to see someone who faced 60-odd balls get a bit more than – sorry, 40-odd balls get a bit more than 60 in those games. But – I will also loop back and say we were a bit lucky last time. We are a bit unlucky this time. Um, it's not the doom and gloom that everyone makes it out to be. In a, in a tournament where there is um, precious few ga- where there are precious few games, uh, the bounce of the ball either way is going to make a significant difference. I don't think it's the end of the world, but I do think and I hope that Australia now do start to look at T20 cricket in a more specialised way. And next time round, pick someone like Nathan Ellis um, rather than just relying on the three big test quicks, because I think that they were underperforming in this world cup. And that's another thing I did highlight that I was concerned that, um, you know, maybe they weren't, weren't the right option. We probably needed to go with more spin, Um, you know? uh, So uh, yeah, I think that's probably my overall summation of it. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I think that Finch innings against Sri Lanka will go down in history as perhaps the worst innings in T20 World Cup history. And, uh, you know, until that last innings against Ireland, I think Finch had hit like 50 off 80 balls. You know, as an opening batter in a T20 tournament, I mean, that's unacceptable. Um, I do think it's strange, though, that you're not critical of the Aussies, not batting the overs out. As someone that's, you know, very good with numbers and very very knowledgeable about the rules, you know, you would just, it's criminal to leave, you know, 17 balls out there. Yeah, you're probably right. I probably should be a little bit more uh, critical. I suppose I think that you're so keen on getting the win and that Australia do bat fairly deeply that there was a, there was probably a point with a couple of overs to go where they should have just said, right, we're not going to win this. Let's try and sort of um, uh, minimise the damage. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I take that point. Yeah, and I, I actually, you know, I point the finger at Andrew McDonald and uh, Aaron Finch for that. You know, that's what I find really surprising. You know, you highlighted some tactical issues that went wrong for Australia. You know, we were picking Finch because he's a great leader, and yet we were all over the shop. The selection was bad. We didn't know the rules. The fielding was ordinary. You know, we let teams get off the hook. You know, we should have bowled Ireland out for 50, let them get over 100. Afghanistan almost won. I mean, it just... Almost a farcical tournament from Australia. Oh, I just thought that, that uh, without wanting to harp on it too much, I'm sure that deep, deep down, the selectors, if they were picking the, the side and their lives depended on it, they wouldn't pick Fitch. He's not in the top side at the moment. And no amount of, no matter how good a bloke you are or how good a captain you are, there's not that much scope for um, the captain to do much in T20 cricket. When you look at the other captains who would be on offer, are you telling me that Aaron Finch is a, uh, a vastly more capable captain tactically than than Pat Cummins or or, or Matthew Wade? I, I don't think so. They're, they're probably very similar as far as um as as far as tactical now is concerned. So I just thought it was um uh, unprofessional by the Australian selectors to not make the hard call. And 
I would have said that even if he'd gone on and uh, dominated the World Cup. I thought just on the available evidence before the World Cup, he wasn't in Australia's uh, best 15. Therefore, he shouldn't have been picked. End of story. Agree. Um, and uh, look, I, I think this will be a real wake-up call for Andrew McDonald. Um, you know, he's, he, he doesn't come from, you know, coaching international teams before. And, you know, this was his first major tournament as head coach. The team was caught short. I think Andrew McDonald is a very fine coach. He's a, he's a very good communicator. He's been on this podcast before. We had a really good chat. And I, I'm willing to... I'm willing to say that I think he can learn from this, but I think Andrew McDonald on this performance, it's a, it's a weak coaching performance. Well, I think that, yeah, but I still think that the, the overall selectors need to... Um, I said before the tournament that Australia, the selectors should be told, if you're going to go in against all evidence and pick someone who doesn't deserve to be in there, we'd better well win, bloody well win the tournament. Otherwise, your jobs are gone. I, I, I think that that's what should happen. I think they should say... You demonstrably ignored the evidence. It didn't work. You're out. Now, not, Shane not Watson to be sacked as coach, but for the selectors to be removed. Well, um, Andrew McDonald is a selector. It is uh, Finch, Bailey, and McDonald, so he does have to take a lot of responsibility. And on that, so Shane Watson was at the Sydney Cricket Ground today, and and he made lots of really incisive comments. I mean, he was very disappointed with the Australian performance. Uh, he was um, very critical of Stark being left out. He was he was almost in disbelief that Stark wasn't picked. And then um, I asked him this question. Have a listen. Yeah, Shane, how much responsibility does Andrew McDonald have to take for the team looking underprepared and maybe tactically not being very switched on in that first game? Well, he's a selector. So oh, the selectors definitely need to take a, a look at themselves, um, him and George Bailey. They... The big decisions that they made in the lead up to that tournament, you know, they have to live and die by their sword um, with the decisions they made in the lead up to that tournament and then how things panned out in that last game as well. So um, they've had a, a pretty cruisy ride um, over the last little while because the Australians have been, been playing really nicely. But now a T20 World Cup at home and not performing how the group certainly can, there'll be certainly the microscope be on them as, as it should be. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I, um, I kind of said something a little bit similar, I suppose. But what I don't, I don't really want to echo back to the sort of Justin Langer era and say that that things would have been better uh, under him. I think that, um, you know, I'm not all that interested in in that that side of things. But yeah, I mean, you know, most um, that's what happens in professional top level sport. That if it's an underwhelming performance, there's got to be some accountability. And I do think that there was a bit of muddled thinking going into the World Cup, the fact that they kept tinkering with the team and they got Green to open the batting and they put Finch in the middle order. You know, it seemed to me like Finch needed every chance at the top of the order to try and get in some form. So it seemed curious that he was batting down the order. I just Those little things, I think, just added a little bit of instability to the team when what they needed was actually just to be um, getting in the groove, working on their roles and not sort of messing around. And and also what does it do for the team if you're not sure? Are they going to open with Green or where's Finch going to bat? I just think there was a, a lack of clarity. Yeah, I suppose if, if, if their decision had always been that Finch is going to be in the side and he's going to be opening in the World Cup and if they never really were intending anything else, then it was, yeah, a little bit strange for him to to bat in the middle order in, in those other games. But, I, yeah, I don't think it's such a big deal, that part. All right, so I've got the Aussie stats up from the World Cup, and they do make for pretty miserable reading. I'll pull out a couple. David Warner, four matches, only 44 runs, high score of 25, an average of 11, a strike rate of 107. I think... David Warner's in a tough situation because, you know, we really needed him to fire because we knew we weren't going to get much out of Finch. And I think that's a, a lot to ask of Warner to almost bat for two people. No, that's got nothing to do with it. I think he's just got a bat and he didn't bat well. Um, but he's batted brilliantly many, many times. He was the player of the tournament um, a year ago. He just didn't, uh, just didn't have a great one. Marcus Stoinis was the leading run scorer, 126 runs at an average of 42, strike rate of 161.53. I mean, he had a he had a good tournament with the bat. Marcus Stoinis, uh, um, is that he? So you broke up? Yes, yes, Stoinis. Yeah, yeah, he did, and that, that innings he played in um, Perth was was superb. Um, yeah, he's um, 
definitely a player for the future with certainly with the bat. I'm not sure, not, not so sure how much uh, with the ball, but he has done really well in the last World Cup and then in this one. Yeah, Steve Smith ended up playing just one game that last game against Afghanistan. Glenn Maxwell made 118 runs, high score 54 not out. What did you think of his tournament? Yeah, I mean, he played all right in the last game. It was just, um, I think with all of them, it was very stop-start that when you have a tournament where you you play against New Zealand um, and it all went wrong. And then the other games are against Ireland and Afghanistan and Sri Lanka, and that's it. Um, yeah, it's a small sample size. It was just a, yeah, it was just a disappointing effort all around without, I think, it being the, the, the catastrophic effort that some people in the media are, are making it out to be. Well, it is catastrophic. That's including your co-host. Um, so, um, and with the bowling, you know, the highest wicket taker was Adam Zampa and Josh Hazelwood, each with five wickets. Maxwell, Cummins and Stark took three wickets each. So so no bowler really got on a roll. And, and if you look at both stats, the batting and the bowling, you know, we're, we're missing the dominant player we had, say, last World Cup where Warner at the top of the order was, you know, really good and Josh Hazelwood um, took a lot of wickets. So, yeah, I just, I just, we just weren't ever, you know, in form, I think. Well, I haven't got the stats in front of me, but I'd be very interested if you could read out just the economy rates for the bowlers. Okay, so Glenn Maxwell went an economy of six, but that was only 3.1 overs. 6.00. Exactly, yep. Yeah, I mean, he should have bowled more. I know he only bowled a couple of overs, but they uh, I don't know why they don't give him more of a bowl. Adam Zampa, 6.66 in his uh, 12 overs, so that's pretty good. Pat Cummins, 8.25 in his 16 overs. That's not great. Um, Josh Hazelwood went for 8.26 in his 15 overs. So neither of them had great tournaments. And then Mitchell Stark, 8.5 in his 12 overs. So, you know, the big three performed, you know, under what we'd expect. And I did highlight that before the tournament, that I I was saying I think that we should bring in Ellis and I think that we should um, consider playing two spinners. And, that you know, if we were to play tomorrow um, – there would be an argument to say that, and I, I agree that they should have picked Stark against Afghanistan because he could have blown them away. But let's just say we made the semi and we were playing in, in the semi-final against one of these big three teams in the next couple of days. There would be an argument. And if we could pick anyone we wanted, you could say, bring Ellis in and get rid of Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood because they haven't performed. They're just as likely to get belted everywhere and the bowlers that will replace them might get belted everywhere as well, but they haven't been um, to date. And at least we would strengthen the batting. You, you know, you'd have Zampa bowling along with um, Ellis, um, Maxwell, bring bring in Agar, and then maybe Cameron Green and Mitchell Marsh to sort of do the remainder. You, you could actually make an argument that would be a better side than what we had. Yes, and I did hear, I think, Adam Gilchrist talking on the radio today, and he made the same point you did, that maybe Ashton Agar was not used enough. He came in and bowled superbly uh, in the one game, four overs, one for 25, and it's it's surprising they didn't look at that um, after the first couple of games. Year in, year out, the big bash, spinners do the best. And in this tournament... Who were our two most economical bowlers? Our two spinners, even though Maxwell only bowled a couple of overs. And, well, Agar as well. Um, you, you add up all the overs of spin and all the overs of pace in this tournament and do the maths in terms of the economy rates, the spins have, blow, have blown the face away by a mile. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. All right, so that was the Aussie stats. Now, we've got a few messages. Um, okay, Sidant Gerda has asked me to discuss the following issues with you, Paul. He's given us seven, so let's do them rapid fire. Uh, the first question is George Bailey selecting the squad one month before the tournament. Thoughts? Um, well, it was a mistake, but it was compounded by the fact that you could change the squad right up until the last minute before the tournament without any reason, and they didn't take advantage of that. Um, so that, uh, you know, I understand the desire to give sort of stability and um, certainty, but I think that was a mistake, yes. Good, I agree. Uh, number two, unprofessional fielding performance. Well, I'm just going to put my two cents in here. You know, I've been around the Aussie team a lot. I haven't seen them doing many fielding drills. Uh, I'm sure they're, you know, trying to preserve energy, but it was sloppy. Um, you know, maybe their fitness and fielding's, um, you know, taken a bit of a dive since they got rid of the coach. 
I didn't think it was unprofessional. I, I you know, maybe it wasn't their best fielding tournament, but um, uh, no, I, I still think that um, the, the Australian fielding standards are generally pretty high. Should Stark play in the IPL? No, in the IPL now after the snub. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I, I don't think that he should make his decision to, to, as to whether he'd play in the IPL or not based on being excluded against Afghanistan. I think he's done it for good reasons in the past, not because he wants to extend his Australian career. So, um, you know, um, he should do what he's always done and, and make the best decision for him. And I've applauded him for foregoing it a few times. And if he was to take the money and go there now, I would have no criticism of, it all, of him at all. But um, I'm not sure how attractive he, a proposition he would be to IPL franchises. They don't muck around. And his economy rate has been steadily ballooning out in these last few years. He might not get that many bids. Yeah, you're right. Um, but I would like to see him go over there and see how he does because we haven't really seen him um, enough in the IPL and how he does sort of um, fare against the, you know, in the best T20 competition in the world. Great questions from Sudan. There's a few more there, but we actually answered most of them in our chat already. Uh, and just another message from Michael, and he backs up what you said, that Australia played five warm-up games leading into this World Cup and bowled first in all five and lost all of them bar one, yet first game at home against New Zealand, we send them in and immediately get on the back foot. What do you think? Can you say that again, that we in the, in the five warm-up games we... We bowled first or batted first? Um, bowled first. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I think that it was um, it was a mistake. Uh, given the the first game, you just had this feel. If, who, I just had this feel sitting there. Whoever goes out to bat first on this pitch is going to enjoy it, and I think that that should have been something that the Australians capitalised on. Yeah. Good question, Michael. Good comment. So thank you very much. And thanks for everybody that sent in messages um, since Australia crashed out. All right, Paul. Well, now it's uh, just a quick look at the semifinals. So Wednesday, New Zealand hosting Pakistan. Sorry, I'll do that again. So Wednesday, New Zealand taking on Pakistan at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And then Thursday, England v India at Adelaide Oval. Um, So the way I sort of see it is, you know, England's wobble against Sri Lanka has made me a little bit nervous, um, you know, how they'll cope in the pressure cooker of a semi-final. So I'm going to tip an India win in Adelaide and a New Zealand win at the SCG. I probably agree with those tips, but with no confidence at all. I think it's um, pretty close to a toss of the coin in, in both games. Um, I, all I can say is that I think that it's going to be potentially two really, really good games of cricket um, and really looking forward to watching them. Um, yeah, if I had to tip a winner at the moment, I probably would say, yeah, I agree with you, but maybe India beats New Zealand in the final. But yeah, I'm like you. There's very little in it, and you know, Pakistan come in it with. I mean, they they come in it sort of with this abandon where they thought thought they routed the tournament a few days ago, and now it's almost like a second life for them, a second chance. So they can just sort of go out there and have a good time, and perhaps you know that they'll be the team that comes home with a wet sail, which would be ironic because you know they were on the the other end of it in last year's semi final where Australia came home with a wet sail and, you know, had Hassan Ali taken the, cat, taken the catch off Matthew Wade, maybe, you know, we'd be talking about, um, you know, Pakistan winning the last T20 World Cup. So, yeah, just a really close run thing. Yes, and hopefully the pitch is better than the uh, – hopefully the pitch is more like the pitch for the Australian-New Zealand game at the start of the tournament than it was for the other night's game. Yeah, I'd, agree. I'd love to see a nice, hard, bouncy wicket because both teams have really good pace bowling. Both teams have aggressive attacking batters. I was watching Conway and Williamson in the nets today. Jeez, um, Conway looks good. He looks a really good player. Williamson's not bad either, but Conway was hitting the ball really well. Yeah, it's an interesting one for New Zealand. I think if they play Williamson, then um, he, he, he should be treated in the way that I've said Australia should have t- treated Smith, that play him if the pitch looks like it's going to be difficult, but if it's an absolute belter, maybe don't play him. Or if you do play him and you're getting away to a blinder, then he comes in at number eight. 
I have to say the Kiwis are so nice. At one point, Devin Conway dropped a swear word and he actually apologised to me for swearing. And I was just like, you've obviously never heard my podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's just so nice. Just a great bunch of guys. So I hope they do well, as do I hope all the other teams go well and enjoy uh, the last week of the T20 World Cup. And um, I've got a can't let it go. I know we don't necessarily have to have one, but I've got one. Good. And that is in the Australia-Afghanistan game, there was an over where the Australians only got to face five balls. And I'm not saying this is a bitter Australian fan because it made no difference to the overall tournament. But how is it that that's able to happen? There was, I think it was the fourth or fifth over of the game that only five balls were bowled. Surely the third umpire should have been on the ball. Surely the laws should be such that if it's discovered, as it would have been a few balls later, that they, they tack it on um, at some point because it's still better to have it than not. But my big thing is why did it not get brought up in the coverage? Now, they knew about it in the coverage because they know everything up there. And I'm hoping, but I'm fearing that once again, as we saw with Michael Holding a few years ago, the, where the ICC sort of rebuked him for criticising the umpires during the tournament, that the commentators who have signed up to commentate for this tournament have been under instructions to not be overly critical of the tournament because otherwise it would have been a massive talking point. I'm really disappointed if what I fear is that has happened has happened. Now, don't get me wrong. If they said to me, Paul, we'd like you to um, join the commentary for the next World Cup, but you're not allowed to criticise them, I'd say, where do I sign? And my principles would go out the window. But I'm in the happy position at the moment where that's not the case, so I can stand on my moral high, high ground and say the commentator should have said something about it. Yes, and uh, apparently it almost happened on the last day as well where the same umpire almost called another fireball over, but he was told by the other umpire, no, there's one more ball. Um, And then the same umpire was the TV umpire when I think Shakib Al-Hassan got a very strange LBW where it was clear there was an edge, but because the pitches and the, uh, the, the sticker didn't quite match up, the umpire still gave him out when he should have been given not out. So I agree with you. Those little things need sorting out. And you would think, say, a five ball over is easily fixable. You either say, okay, we have to bowl that ball, so to get whoever it is to bowl one ball, or you say, okay, well, unfortunately, in the second innings, uh, one bowler has to bowl a five ball over. Yes, but also, why weren't the TV commentators highlighting it as they would have done? Imagine if it happened in the Australian summer. You could just see them um, five minutes after. We've got an interesting point here. Did we just see a five ball over? We'll just look back. We'll, we'll actually watch the replay. One, two, three, four, five. They have failed to bowl a sixth ball. That's amazing. And the fact that they didn't do that, I, I, tell me if I'm dreaming, but I think the inescapable conclusion is the commentators are under instructions not to criticise the tournament, and that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, absolutely they are. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Um, it would have been amazing. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying when you're scoring a game, when you unearth something like this. Like I was scoring once at the SCG and there was two seven-ball overs in the day and it was like the the greatest, you know, it was so exciting. Um, <laughs> I wish I'd been scoring those five-ball over games. But um, I thought this was on Crick Info had it instantly because, of course, they they they, they had the, zero, you know, the – the 4.6 ready to go and there's nothing there. They've, they've suddenly said we just had a five ball over. So it was known um, within seconds. Actually, um, me and Macca, the original co-host of this podcast, we actually scored the very first T20 World Cup final between India and Pakistan. We, um, yeah, we scored the whole th- Was it India and Pakistan or India, Sri Lanka? I can't remember, but we, India, we, Pakistan. Scored, we scored it. Um, we stayed up late. Did you score the ball went- off? I can't, I can't remember. Uh, I think by that stage we were probably confused, but we definitely scored the 20 <laughs> overs. Um, I went through a phase where I would like to go to the cricket and score. Um, yeah, anyway, just a window into my insanity. Even right, I well, haven't done that, but I, 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 like, I like the idea of it. But even you would I love haven't. it. You would love it. You would just be like, this is the greatest <laughs> day ever. It was so good. The only day it really fell off the wagon was when um, – Clark scored that 300 because we were just like paper everywhere and, you know. He's <laughs> ran out of room. <laughs> exactly. But uh, just so thrilling. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than scoring cricket at the ground. Um, what I used to do was, especially watching the Ashes as a young, when I was a younger boy and if it was at like two in the morning and I started to get tired and to avoid falling asleep, I would actually stand up and umpire for a while in my living room. <laughs> I like that too. 
Uh, there's a few commentators we work with who I'm sure commentate from the couch. Uh, all right. Well, look, um, I think we're coming up to now, so let's um, sign off. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Amenas, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S. And we're on uh, TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered. We're on Instagram and Oz Cricket Pod, AUS Cricket Pod. So go and follow us on socials. Paul, where can the listeners find you? On Twitter, Paul Dennett underscore D for dog, E-N-N-E-T-T. And if you're still listening this far into the show, it means you really like us. So go on and give us a rating on Apple or Spotify. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.